And welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. The United States vetoes another United Nations Security Council resolution that calls for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. But the U.S. offers its own resolution that calls for a temporary ceasefire tied to the release of more than 100 Israeli hostages held by Hamas. President Joe Biden says he will reveal a sanctions package against Russia in response to last week's reported death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. It'll come at the end of the week near the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. President Biden telling reporters on Monday that he's willing to meet with House Speaker Mike Johnson about aid to Ukraine, which has passed the Senate but not the House, amid continuing disagreements over what U.S. border security provisions might be added. We'll hear from the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley says, I'm not going anywhere, vowing to stay in the race against the other major candidate, Donald Trump, even if she loses her home state of South Carolina, which holds its primary this Saturday, and polls indicate she probably will lose. Vice President Kamala Harris in Pittsburgh announcing $5.8 billion for clean water infrastructure projects, including replacing lead pipes. Montana's Governor Greg Gianforte, Republican, is in Washington talking about affordable housing reform in his state. And the Supreme Court does not accept a case challenging the admissions policy of a prestigious magnet high school in Northern Virginia that sought diversity without explicitly using race, but which the plaintiffs say discriminated against Asian American applicants. We'll talk about that with Josh Gerstein, Politico's senior legal affairs reporter. Associated Press at the United Nations in New York City reports the United States vetoed an Arab-backed U.N. resolution Tuesday demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war in the embattled Gaza Strip. The vote in the 15-member Security Council was 13 to 1, with the United Kingdom abstaining, reflecting the wide global support for ending the more than four-month war that started with Hamas's surprise invasion of southern Israel that killed about 1,200 people and saw 250 others taken hostage. Since then, more than 29,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's military offensive, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which does not distinguish between civilians and combatants, but says the majority are women and children. It was the third U.S. veto of a Security Council resolution demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. That was from Associated Press. The resolution was sponsored by Algeria. That country's ambassador to the U.N., Amar Benjama, presented it. The draft resolution underscores key elements, including one, a humanitarian ceasefire, second, an hundred aid delivery to all parts of Gaza of the Gaza Strip, third, rejection of forced displacement of Palestinians. Four, compliance with provisional measures ordered by the International Court of Justice. And fifth and last, the imperative for all parties to respect their obligations under international humanitarian law. Madam President, throughout this process, we have heard calls to give time to a parallel track in order to preserve 
its chances with concern raised that any action from the Council would jeopardize this effort. However, almost one month after the ICG orders, signs of hope are still absent for improvement of the situation in Gaza. Silence. Silence, we contend, is not a viable option. Now is the time for action and the time for truth. The Algerian ambassador to the United Nations, Amar Benjama, offering the ceasefire resolution at today's U.N. Security Council meeting. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, explained why the United States was vetoing this resolution. She also spoke about an alternative resolution being circulated by the U.S. Believe me, I understand the desire for the council to act urgently, to positively shape the situation in line with the Security Council's mandate. Still, that desire cannot blind us to the reality of the situation on the ground. It, and it cannot come at the expense of undermining the only, and let me repeat, the only path available towards a longer, durable peace. And that is why you've heard me say over and over again, any action this council takes right now should help, not hinder these sensitive and ongoing negotiations. And we believe that the resolution on the table right now would, in fact, negatively impact those negotiations. Demanding an immediate, unconditional ceasefire without an agreement requiring Hamas to release the hostages will not bring about a durable peace. Instead, it could extend the fighting between Hamas and Israel extend the hostages' time in captivity, an experience described by former hostages as hell, and extend the dire humanitarian crisis Palestinians are facing in Gaza. None of us want that. And so I reiterate the United States' belief that while numerous parties engage in sensitive negotiations, this is not the time for this resolution which jeopardizes these efforts. Colleagues, I communicated our concerns publicly and privately over the last several weeks. We've submitted numerous rounds of edits. All were ignored. And so for that reason, the United States has offered an alternative resolution that would do what this text does not. Pressure Hamas to take the hostage deal that is on the table and help secure a pause that allows humanitarian assistance to reach Palestinian civilians in desperate need. Again, there is much more we all agree on, and the alternative resolution put forward by the United States is rooted in those shared beliefs. To start, in line with President Biden's comments last week, our text calls for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza as soon as practicable based on the formula of all hostages being released. Last I checked, no one here opposes this. A majority of us also agree that it's time 
for this council to condemn Hamas. We know because you provided that feedback to Russia on its PRST and to Algeria on its resolution, a feedback that was inexplicably ignored. Should the U.S. resolution be adopted, it would be the first to condemn Hamas for the abhorrent attacks of October 7th, including the sexual violence documented that day. The U.S. text also makes clear that Hamas has no place in future governance of Gaza, nor does Hamas represent the dignity or self-determination of the Palestinian people. Again, all things I believe we agree on. In addition, our draft states there can be no reduction of territory in the Gaza Strip and rejects, as we have before in Resolution 2720, any forced displacements of civilians in Gaza. It also highlights the concerns many council members have regarding the fate of civilians in Rafah, making clear that under current circumstances, a major ground offensive into Rafah should not proceed. The U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, at today's Security Council meeting at the U.N. in New York City before the U.S. vetoed the resolution before the council that was offered by Algeria calling for the immediate ceasefire. Reuters reports that the U.S. plans to allow time for negotiations and will not rush to a vote on this alternative being offered. Staying in the Middle East, from the Associated Press, Despite a month of U.S.-led airstrikes, Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi rebels remain capable of launching significant attacks. This week, they seriously damaged a ship in a crucial strait and apparently downed an American drone worth tens of millions of dollars. The Pentagon did get asked about that MQ-9 Reaper drone that went down Monday morning near the Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. And Sabrina Singh, Pentagon deputy spokesperson, says it was likely shot down by a Houthi surface-to-air missile that a U.S. MQ-9 Reaper was shot down near Hodeidah. Was it shot down over land or over sea? Has the U.S. recovered this aircraft? What more can you give us about that? Sure. So I can confirm that on February 19th, a U.S. MQ-9 was downed uh, or went down off the coast of Houthi-controlled areas in Yemen uh, in the Red Sea. Initial indications are that it was shot down by a Houthi surface-to-air missile. In terms of um, recovery options, I know CENTCOM is looking into that, um, but I don't believe it has been recovered at this time. The Pentagon Deputy Spokesperson Sabrina Singh at her news conference at the Pentagon. And later she was asked by a reporter what this loss of a drone means in the larger context of the military operations in the Middle East. Uh, Thanks, Sabrina. Um, With the U.S. losing another MQ-9 over Yemen, Does the DOD view these as expendable? Has there been a decision made to take greater risk with these assets for the greater good, so to speak? Uh, Why not use manned platforms that don't fly as low and slow and pose a um, risk of getting shot down? Yeah, thanks, Chris, for the question. Again, these are platforms that are are available to the commander. He makes these decisions. There is a certain amount of risk that is incurred whenever we fly these to ensure that freedom of navigation is upheld, upheld, the rule of law is upheld. Um, And of course, there's a certain amount of risk. And of course, we care about that risk. Um, These are multi-million, billion dollar platforms. um, And uh, we are, the commander is using them to keep commercial uh, mariners safe, to keep our U.S. service members that are uh, safe in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. 
So of course there's a there's a risk incurred, but um, it's something that we're going to continue to do to ensure that uh, freedom of navigation can continue to be upheld, the rule of law can be upheld, and that um, commercial shipping can continue, whether it be in the Red Sea or um, the Gulf of Aden. The Pentagon Deputy Spokesperson Sabrina Singh at today's news conference. Turning to the war between Russia and Ukraine, President Joe Biden says the U.S. will impose additional sanctions on Russia in response to the death of Alexei Navalny, a prominent Russian opposition leader last week in a Russian prison. President Biden spoke very briefly to reporters as he left the White House. What I came to tell you was, I told you we'd be announcing sanctions on Russia. We'll have a major package announced on Friday. I'll be happy to see you all doing that. Earlier in the day, the White House National Security Communications Advisor John Kirby, in an online audio-only news conference, talked about the upcoming sanctions. He called them major. He also talked about developments in the war in Ukraine this past weekend and the fact that the U.S. House of Representatives has not passed a Ukraine aid bill that the Senate has passed. Now, for many months, we've talked about how Russia was trying to take Avdiivka as part of its offensive in the east. I topped it uh, from the podium just a, a few days ago last week. And we talked about how Russia was su- had suffered thousands and thousands of casualties in the process. For months, Ukraine had been able to keep the Russian attacks at bay until they started to run out of ammunition, particularly uh, from uh, with respect to artillery, uh, the kind of ammunition that they needed to prevent those Russian forces from reaching Ukrainian defensive lines uh, and overrunning those positions. Uh, Let's be clear about this. Uh, Ukraine's decision to withdraw from Avdivka wasn't because they weren't brave enough, wasn't because they weren't well-led enough, it wasn't because they weren't trained, it wasn't because uh, they they didn't have uh, the the tactical uh, acumen to defend themselves and to defend that town. It was because of congressional inaction. And we've been warning Congress that if they didn't act, Ukraine would suffer losses on the battlefield. And here you go. That's what happened this weekend. And that's that's what's at stake here uh, in Ukraine. Uh, if we can't get the supplemental funding and get the kinds of arms and ammunition into the hands of Ukrainian soldiers as soon as possible. On Friday now, we also got the horrific news that Alexei Navalny died in a Russian prison. As you heard the president say, Mr. Navalny had courageously stood up to the corruption, the violence, um, and all the malicious activity that the Putin government um, had been doing. Whatever story the Russian government uh, decides to tell the world, uh, it's clear that President Putin and his government are responsible for Mr. Navalny's death. In response, President Biden's direction, we will be announcing a major sanctions package on Friday of this week to hold Russia accountable for what happened to Mr. Navalny and, quite frankly, for all its actions over the course of this vicious and brutal war that has now raged on for two years. One of the most powerful things that we can do right now to stand up to Vladimir Putin, of course, is to, again, pass the bipartisan national security supplemental bill and support Ukraine as they continue to fight bravely in defense of their country. John Kirby, the White House National Security Communications Advisor, during an audio-only online news conference. From Bloomberg News, President Joe Biden said he would be willing to meet House Speaker Mike Johnson to discuss an emergency funding package for Ukraine and Israel 
after White House officials previously dismissed the utility of direct talks. He told reporters Monday after returning to the White House from his weekend in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, I'd be happy to meet with him if he has anything to say. There were follow-up questions today to the White House press secretary at her news conference on Air Force One. The president said yesterday he's willing to meet with the House Speaker. Is there any update on that, any progress made? Um, obviously, the president, if it, it is if it is indeed um, a, a serious discussion he uh, to be had, he's open to that, obviously, right? He's If it's a serious discussion, but I have to remind everybody, right, what Putin, Putin is a deep threat to our national security. You guys know this. I don't even have to remind you that. Uh, our borders needs needs to be secured, right? You've heard us say this. The president has le- has led on both when it comes to getting a bipartisan agreement on the border security. When it, when you saw what the uh, what the Senate was able to do on getting that uh, national security supplemental in a bipartisan way, but so far it's the speaker, as I just stated moments ago, it's the speaker that is the only one who is actively hurting America's national security by killing those priorities that I just laid out than going on an early early vacation, as I mentioned already. So this is a question to the speaker. Is he going to choose Trump? Is this what he's going to do? And his own internal politics over the doing doing what's right for the Ukraine, doing what's right for our national security, doing what's right for our border, doing what's right for Israel and the Palestinian civilians. Or And let's not forget the Indo-Pacific. If so, let's have that real discussion. Let's have a serious, good faith discussion. But we all know where the speaker stands already, and he's playing politics on this. What does a serious discussion entail? What, how is that different than the last conversation they had? Here's the thing. We know that the Senate already has put forth a bipartisan, uh, a bipartisan agreement passed 70 to 29 uh, on the floor of the Senate to deal with the national security, right? They've also came together to deal with border security. And what we keep hearing from the speaker, this is why it's it's kind of it's it's kind of bizarre, right? Because they they keep swinging, right? They keep saying we must have bipartisan border legislation now to where on earth did this bipartisan border legislation come from? Get it away from me. We'd like to talk about reversals, right? It's just bizarre. I mean, this is the speaker. This is the speaker of the house who goes from one side to another and doesn't actually know what he wants. So it's up to him. What is, is he really serious about having a conversation? But there are, it's in front of him, right? The, the agreement that came out that came out of the Senate to deal with the national security, it's in front of him. There's a, there, there was an agreement on the border. It's in front of him. He keeps saying these things are dead. He keeps saying these things are dead. And so the president's like, okay, well, if it's a serious conversation, let's have it. But he's not serious. He isn't. Where, where is the seriousness coming from the speaker? So on, on Rob's question, you said, no, there is no update on a meeting with Speaker Johnson and, and the I president? Don't have an update. What I'm saying is we are open to having a serious conversation is that if there is one to be had. But I'm also laying out where the speaker has been for the past couple of weeks on this. He's not serious about this, right? I mean, he. you guys have written about how he swung... From, from back and forth on this The White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre taking reporters' questions on Air Force One. Senator John Corner, Republican from Texas, posting, Enough kabuki. We welcome the president's reversal and openness to meeting with Speaker Johnson about the best path forward for securing the nation. It's long overdue. We look forward to hearing from the White House when he'll be available for a one-on-one meeting that the speaker has requested for weeks. 
Wall Street Journal reports a Russian court upheld the detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, whom the U.S. government deems to be wrongfully detained following recent remarks by President Vladimir Putin that he is open to a prisoner exchange for the journalist's release. Tuesday's rejection of the latest appeal by Gershkovich's lawyers means he is set to remain behind bars until at least March 30th, which would mark more than one year since he was taken into custody on an allegation of espionage that the Journal and the U.S. government vehemently denied. That was the Wall Street Journal reporting. The U.S. ambassador to Russia, Lynn Tracy, made a statement today outside the courthouse in Moscow. I've just left the Moscow city court where the court has denied the appeal of Evan Gershkovich's latest extension of detention. Evan is an American journalist whom the Russian authorities have detained now wrongfully for nearly an entire year. The U.S. position remains unchanged. The charges against Evan are baseless. The Russian government has locked Evan up simply for reporting news. When the Kremlin uses lives as bargaining chips, real people suffer. Although I could not speak with Evan in the courtroom today, I expect to visit him tomorrow at Laforte of a prison where I will check on his treatment and his well-being. The plight of U.S. citizens wrongfully detained in Russia remains a top priority for me, for my team, and for the entire U.S. government. It is unacceptable that Evan Gershkovich and Paul Whelan still languish in Russian prisons on baseless charges. The United States will not rest until Evan and Paul are free and back home with their families. U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Lynn Tracy, making that statement in Moscow. Russia's FSB Security Services says it has arrested a woman with dual U.S.-Russian nationality suspected of treason, saying she's 33 years old, a resident of Los Angeles, and she is suspected of proactively collecting funds which were subsequently used to purchase tactical medical items, equipment, means of destruction, and ammunition for the Ukrainian armed forces. And also she took part in public activity supporting the Kyiv regime. Not many details provided. More from the State Department, U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller. With respect to this most recent detention, we are aware of the case. Uh, we are seeking consular assistance uh, that has not yet uh, been granted. We're uh, at limit what more we can say uh, because, uh, with respect, because of privacy laws, as I've discussed many times from this podium. Uh, and I will just say generally, as um, I think you are aware, Russia, when it comes to dual citizens of the United States and Russia, or dual citizens of any other country in Russia, Russia does not recognize dual citizenship, uh, considers them to be Russian citizens first and foremost. And so oftentimes we have a difficult uh, time getting consular assistance, but we will pursue it uh, in all matters where a U.S. citizen is detained. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller at his news conference in Washington. A CBS News article reads that Russian state news agency R.A. Novosti posted a video from the FSB showing hooded officers handcuffing and escorting a woman in a white coat with a white hat pulled down over her eyes. Treason is punishable by up to life in prison under legislation toughened since the start of the military offensive in Ukraine. Also, an article today in the Washington Post, the man's corpse found riddled with bullets and run over by a vehicle in Spain last week was identified as that of Russian military pilot Maxim Kuzumov, who flew his 
Mi-8 helicopter to Ukraine in a dramatic defection last August, Ukrainian officials said. His apparent murder after a very public threat to his life last year on Russian state television has raised questions about whether this was a Russian-ordered assassination carried out on European soil. Washington Today continues in a moment. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team, along with my colleague, Nate. Join us as we celebrate C-SPAN's 45th anniversary and our inaugural Founders Day campaign. It all started as a bold experiment on March 19, 1979, when C-SPAN first brought coverage of the House of Representatives into living rooms across America. Let's celebrate C-SPAN's visionary founders who believed in offering unfiltered access to the inner workings of our political process. From Congress to the White House to the courts and beyond, C-SPAN has documented history unfolding without commentary or spin for over four decades. Help us keep it going. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to give a gift in celebration of C-SPAN's Founders Day. Your donation honors the original vision of C-SPAN's founders and helps to advance our mission for years to come. Make your donation today at cspan.org slash donate. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast wherever you find your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app, which is free. From NBC News, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley made it clear Tuesday in an address on the state of the GOP presidential primary that she's not going to drop out soon, even as she significantly trails former President Donald Trump in the polls. Speaking at her alma mater, Clemson University, Haley ripped into the former president, calling him a disaster for the GOP, more unstable and unhinged than when he first ran, criticizing other Republicans for being too afraid to say it out loud. That was from NBC News. Here's part of Nikki Haley's speech in Greenville. Some of you, perhaps a few of you in the media, came here today to see if I'm dropping out of the race. Well, I'm not. Far from it, and I'm here to tell you why. I'm running for president because we have a country to save. Since the start of my campaign, I've been focused on the real issues our country faces, the ones that determine whether America will thrive or spiral out. I'm talking about the millions of students who don't know how to read or do basic math, the families who can't afford groceries, much less a first home, the total lawlessness on our southern border, I'm talking about the murders in our cities, the fentanyl on our streets, the children who've been killed in their mom's car by stray bullets. And I'm talking about the American weakness that led to wars in Europe and the Middle East and the urgent need to restore our strength before war spreads and draws America further in. These are the challenges I'm here to tackle. But instead of focusing on how to make America stronger tomorrow, some people want to know if I'm going to cave today. (laughs) We've all heard the calls for me to drop out. We all know where they're coming from. The political elite, the party bosses, the cheerleaders in the commentator world. The argument is familiar. They say I haven't won a state, that my path to victory is slim. They point to the primary polls and say, I'm only delaying the inevitable. Why keep fighting when the battle was apparently over after Iowa? 
look, I get it. In politics, the herd mentality is enormously strong. A lot of Republican politicians have surrendered to it. The pressure on them was way too much. They didn't want to be left out of the club. Of course, many of the same politicians who now publicly embrace Trump privately dread him. They know what a disaster he's been and will continue to be for our party. They're just too afraid to say it out loud. Well, I'm not afraid to say the hard truths out loud. I feel no need to kiss the ring. I have no fear of Trump's retribution. I'm not... I'm not looking for anything from him. My own political future is of zero concern. Nikki Haley, Republican presidential candidate in Greenville, South Carolina. The South Carolina presidential primary is Saturday, February 24th. Donald Trump presidential campaign senior advisors Chris Lasavita and Susan Wiles have written a memo shared with reporters saying Nikki Haley does not have a path to victory and her campaign will effectively end after the South Carolina primary because even if she does as well in the upcoming primary, South Carolina and beyond, as she did at her high-water mark, New Hampshire primary, Donald Trump will still secure enough delegates to get the nomination, they say, by March 19th. They write, of course, like any wailing loser hell-bent on an alternative reality and refusing to come to grips with her imminent political mortality, We should expect more references to kings and coronations, even though the results of five elections overwhelmingly sent an unmistakable message. Nikki Haley doesn't represent Republicans any more than Joe Biden does. Vice President Kamala Harris traveled to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania today, a pivotal election battleground state, along with EPA Administrator Michael Regan announcing $5.8 billion for water infrastructure projects around the country. The money comes from the $50 billion earmarked for water infrastructure in the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law from 2021 that President Biden signed. The vice president spoke about the importance of clean drinking water for all Americans and paid special attention to replacing lead pipes. The Biden administration says that 9 million homes, daycare centers, and businesses get their water through toxic lead pipes. For years, parents, grandparents, Grandmothers, grandfathers, aunties and uncles, people in the community have been talking about this issue and have been demanding to be seen and be heard. Demanding and saying, look, it does not require a scientist or a doctor to understand the impacts of lead pipes on the health of our children. And the voices of the community must be heard. And let us also acknowledge that while lead pipes were once standard in all communities, today not all communities are impacted in the same way. Because of course, the folks who have extra resources, maybe they have equity in their home and they're a homeowner, right? Maybe they have money in the bank account, maybe some savings. Well, then they can pay to replace the lead pipes in their home. But people in low-income communities or people who rent often cannot. And the president and I understand that this is, yes, it is an infrastructure matter, but it is also a public health matter. 
It is also a public health matter. And one of the essential functions of government is to concern itself with the public health, which is why President Biden and I decided that we need to address this issue, understanding the public health crisis it can create, and then making sure that all people have access to what they need to be healthy, regardless of how much money they have in their back pocket. So we have invested billions of dollars to remove every lead pipe in our nation, including right here in Pittsburgh. And today I am proud to announce that President Biden and I are dedicating $5.8 billion in federal dollars to help remove lead pipes and to fund clean water projects across our country which includes more than $200 million for Pennsylvania. Vice President Kamala Harris at the Kingsley Association Community Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. CBS News article on her visit has this. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says no safe blood level in children has been identified. And even low levels of lead have been shown to negatively affect the child's intelligence, ability to pay attention, and academic achievement. According to the EPA, Pennsylvania has more than 700,000 lead water lines still in use, the fourth highest of any state in the country. Montana's Governor Greg Gianforte, a Republican, was in Washington, D.C. today at the Bipartisan Policy Center to discuss affordable housing reform legislation that he signed into law last year. An article from Governing Magazine from last June explains both chambers of Montana legislature are held by Republican supermajorities. Nonetheless, Democratic support for legalizing housing construction played an important role there in 2021. Representative Danny Tenenbaum, a Democrat, introduced a bill that would have legalized two to four units on many of the state's lots zoned exclusively for single-family housing. The bill failed, but it played an important role in starting the conversation. This year, a similar bill legalizing duplexes across the state succeeded. Other components of the so-called Montana miracle in housing reform include allowing homeowners to build accessory dwelling units, ADUs, legalizing multifamily housing in areas zoned for office or retail development, and, and important streamlining reforms for permitting new housing of all types. That was from Governing Magazine last June. Here is the Montana governor, Greg Gianforte, today at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Do you think the, the, the fact that you had broad membership and the fact that you had a tight deadline with a very uh, specific assignment uh, for the task force was part of the secret sauce to make that effective? Uh, it allowed us to build consensus around what could have been a very thorny issue in a very quick way. And given we came into the session with that bipartisan support, um, we, uh, we were able to get the stuff done. So I think it made a big difference. So the task force uh, had 36 recommendations, and uh, how was it received by the legislature initially? Did you have to really kind of muscle the legislature to say, you know, well, take our, up the Our legislature can't be muscled. They <laughs> They're independent <laughs> thinkers. So we had to build consensus around these issues. But we always brought it back to uh, we wanted our teachers, our police officers, our nurses to live in the communities where they served. And that was something everybody could support. And I, that, that's been my experience when, when Susan and I had a chance to serve in Congress here. We, we'd have people 
to dinner at our home on Capitol Hill every week, bipartisan groups. And we just, when you break bread with people and you share time together and you focus on the, the, the key principle you're trying to achieve, it's a lot easier to build consensus. Mm -hmm. So uh, some of the things the uh, task force recommended, as I understand, were to allow um, multifamily residential in uh, single-family zoned areas, to allow ADUs without parking minimums associated with it. Uh, these are some of the things that you uh, that, that they recommended. And so, could you? It seems like it was a supply supply issue and using deregulation as a means of increasing housing density. And tell me the concern, is, is it really, is, is, that, is that right? It was more focused on, on supply and, and how, how to build more homes? Well, that was the problem. Uh, we yeah. had, uh, in part because everybody discovered that Montana's more beautiful than any other state in the country. And the show Yellowstone uh, and the pandemic combined that everybody was moving there. And uh, they, if they weren't moving there as a permanent residence, they bought a home as a second home and took that out of the inventory. So it was our population over the last 10 years has grown by 10%. The number of new doorknobs has only grown by 7%. Plus we had these added homes taken out of inventory for second homes. So we had a supply problem. And that was something we recognized early in the process. Uh, so we focused on supply issues. Governor Greg Gianforte, former congressman, Republican from Montana, with Dennis Shea, Bipartisan Policy Center, Housing Policy Executive Director, and a former Housing and Urban Development Assistant Secretary in the George W. Bush administration at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington. You can find this full discussion at our video library at cspan.org. Wall Street today, the Dow down 64, NASDAQ down 144, S&P down 30. An article at Politico reads, Supreme Court on Tuesday decided to punt on a case about the admissions policy at a selective public high school in Northern Virginia that had the potential to further dismantle the reach of affirmative action in education. And joining us now, one of the reporters on that story, Josh Gerstein, who covers legal affairs for Politico. What was this case about and why did the justices reject it? So this case stems from a lawsuit that was filed by Asian and Asian-American parents, students in northern Virginia who were uh, interested in attending Thomas Jefferson High School. It's a science and technology magnet school that draws from a few different uh, jurisdictions around Fairfax County in northern Virginia. And uh, they contended that some changes that were made to the admissions practices there to sort of de-emphasize grades, test scores, that kind of information, and uh, emphasize uh, other factors uh, amounted to discrimination against uh, Asians and Asian Americans. Uh, they filed a suit over this. Uh, and uh, a judge initially, Judge Claude Hilton, who's based in Northern Virginia, ruled in favor of the challengers who were suing. But then the uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals down in Richmond uh, later overturned that decision in a 2-1 ruling. And uh, therefore, there was an appeal to the Supreme Court uh, by the challengers and had been sitting there for some time. And then we learned that the justices are not going to hear this case. Uh, although their refusal to do so was over a uh, rather vociferous objection from uh, two justices, Justice Samuel Alito and Justice Clarence Thomas, both conservative 
Republican appointees. Uh, why the other justices refused to hear the case, we don't know, because um, as is the custom when they turn down a case, um, the justices making that decision don't typically tell us uh, why they're doing so. This case was closely watched given the Supreme Court's decisions in the affirmative action cases on the college level last year. Is there a distinction between this case and those cases that might account for the fact that they didn't take it? Well, you know, there there were a lot of questions after the uh, Supreme Court's ruling in a pair of cases last year, uh, one from Harvard, one from the University of North Carolina, uh, where the justices seem to outlaw consideration of race in the admissions process, at least under most circumstances. Uh, but there are a number of other proxies that you can use in an admissions process for race, as well as factors that simply have a disproportionate impact on uh, particular races one way or another. And, you know, especially in the wake of the Supreme Court's uh, ruling last year, there's been a lot of advocates saying uh, some of these other measures should be uh, tried. You can put an emphasis on uh, students, for example, coming from a particular uh, neighborhood that might be uh, underprivileged. Uh, at the college level, we sometimes see application processes where the top few percent or the top 10 percent out of particular high schools are uh, automatically uh, admitted. And so uh, some folks have been looking for signals from the justices about uh, what other types of measures schools may use to try to promote uh, racial diversity. And what are the legal standards there if some one or some group comes forward and says you know, using those criteria is uh, just a stand in for race? Uh, how will those kinds of cases be litigated here? The Supreme Court said they were not interested in outlining um, those principles in connection with this particular case. Again, it's hard to know why uh, the justices said that, but it could be that this case is a little bit complicated. It includes both allegations that the criteria that were added to the uh, admission system uh, discriminate against Asians and Asians Americans, as well as some claims that there was an actual uh, animus. In other words, there was a deliberate intent to reduce the number of Asians and Asians American, Asian Americans at the school because some people felt it was a disproportionate number uh, to their percentage of the population. Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter with Politico. Find his article at politico.com and on X at Josh Gerstein. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Supreme Court today heard a case involving a lawsuit challenging the time limit to challenge a federal regulation, which is six years. A 2011 Federal Reserve regulation sets maximum swipe fees that retailers can be charged by financial institutions when customers use their debit cards for purchases. A truck stop in North Dakota wanted to sue, but since it opened in 2018, it was after the six years. Here is Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson questioning an attorney for that truck stop, Brian Ware. Mr. Ware, I I thought that um, we had sort of basic first principles uh, governing statutes of limitations, and it sort of goes to what Justice Kagan pointed out, but... um, I thought that we ordinarily say that a cause of action arises, um, which is accrues, it arises when all of the facts that are necessary to establish the elements of that cause of action have occurred. 
um, you know, in a tort situation when there's a duty, if there's a breach and uh, injury as a result of the breach, those facts have occurred, the cause of action has arisen. And we say the clock starts running at that point because a claim against the defendant can be sustained in court when those facts exist. All right, so if that's right as a first principle, I guess I don't understand your argument that the cause of action is arising here when the plaintiff can bring the claim. I think the law regarding to, you know, when a plaintiff can bring a claim is something different. But we have here a cause of action arising out of the final agency action because that is the point at which a person can sustain a claim against the agency under the APA. Why am I wrong about that? So this, this court has identified the elements of an APA claim and it requires a plaintiff who was injured and injured by agency action. So those are the elements. Where, where, where have we said that that was an element? I thought that was just a statement of the statute as to who can bring the claim. Not the element, not, not like the element of the claim, when has the defendant violated the law? So I would point the court to the Lujan decision, 1990, where it outlines the elements of an APA claim. Mm -hmm. um, the court, court dealt with it there. But you can look at the statute itself. Section 702 identifies who? A person. That who has, that's who has the cause of action, a person. Right, who has the cause of action. I'm talking about what are the elements of the cause of action, and I thought it was the agency has enacted a final rule that you claim is arbitrary and capricious or not in accordance with the law. That once the agency has done that, we have a cause of action. It has arisen, and then these other elements or these other aspects of the statute say who is the person who can bring such a claim. So I disagree with that. This court has said that certainly final agency action is an element of an APA claim, but the other element, as this court noted in Lujan and I think in Newport News, is somebody who's actually harmed by it, a plaintiff who was harmed by it. Attorney Brian Ware in the oral argument, Corner Post Incorporated, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. The question's coming from Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. E&E News reporting on today's oral argument saying the Supreme Court appeared divided on whether new companies should be able to sue over federal rules years after they are finalized. Some justices struggled with the broader impacts of such a ruling, and at least two members of the court's liberal minority seemed concerned that a win for the challengers in the case, combined with a potential decision this term to overturn the Chevron doctrine, would open a Pandora's box of new lawsuits over federal rules on the environment, public safety, and other key issues. That reporting from E&E News. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word. It's free, and get the stories making headlines in Washington emailed to you every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night.